Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. You? You're okay. This one? Real fucking up. Okay, this is not now. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. It's your name, neighbor. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. The platinum character is very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. Toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. That are Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I am your host, joined as always by my co-host Andrew. How are you doing today, sir? Hello, hello. I am up in the middle. Well, for me, what is the middle of the night? I work overnight and I sleep all day, so it's the middle of the day. But <laughs> I'm. Uh, it might as well be the middle of the night for me. But you're awake and alert and ready to talk some blue collar. Yes, I am. All right. So we are tackling a 1978 movie directed by Paul Schrader entitled Blue Collar. Paul Schrader at the time was best known as a screenwriter, probably best known for scripting Martin Scorsese's now classic Taxi Driver. That was the first of uh, several collaborations he would do with Scorsese. The movie Blue Collar marks his directorial debut. He penned the, the screenplay with his brother Leonard Schrader, who had some success himself as a solo screenwriter, but also collaborated with his brother Paul on four total scripts, this being the second of the of their four. The movie was produced by Don Guest. The cinematography was done by Bobby Byrne. The film was edited by Tom Rolfe. The music was done by Jack Nitschke. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And he collaborated on the track Hard Working Man as a collaboration with Captain Beefheart. Captain Beefheart, best known probably for his work with Frank Zappa. Uh, the song Hard Working Man opens up, the, opens up the movie and also is played a couple times throughout. The film had a budget of $1.7 million and grossed a total of $6.5 million. It was very well received by critics. The film was shot over the course of 35 days in Kalamazoo and Detroit, Michigan. The film stars Richard Pryor as Zeke Brown, Harvey Keitel as Jerry Bartowski, Yafet Kodo as John Smokey James, the three of which are our three leads, our three protagonists, who are all working on an auto assembly line in Detroit, Michigan. The film also stars Cliff DeYoung as John Burroughs, a government agent that is investigating union corruption. It's a drama based on three men essentially looking for the um, American dream. And it's noted in the movie that if you don't have the money to buy the American dream, that you have to fight for it. As opposed to some movies like Taxi Driver, which is a character study of Travis Bickle, we are we're given three character studies and we see these three men who start out the the film as great friends and great co-workers but ultimately through their course of actions throughout the movie that involve 
robbing their own union, blackmail, corruption, racial tension, personal tension. We see their friendship uh, dissolve before our eyes. It's a very gritty, a very real movie. Anyone that's worked pretty much anywhere, even, you know, we've all had a blue collar job. Well, the majority of us have had a blue collar job at least once in our lifetimes, if not several times in our lifetimes or continue to have them. So it's a very relatable film. It's a very real film. It is a drama. There is some comedy uh, throughout, and it's just a great... It's great to see three actors deliver such incredible performances with three very unique personalities and how these personalities coexist at first and become adversarial towards the end of the movie. So let's travel back to 1978. Let's take a trip back to the Midwest, to Michigan, and let's spend some time with Zeke, Jerry, and Smokey. Andrew, your initial thoughts for Blue Collar. My initial, my initial thoughts are, are very positive. Uh, we've, just so the viewers know, we've talked to, Chris and I have talked about this movie already. We, we stumbled through a version of this of this episode um, and we're redoing it now but the I didn't know anything about this movie it had it, I, I remember it did play at my video store that I worked at in New York City in the 90s um, there was a day when the manager uh, our manager on duty wanted to see some obscure films that uh, were good and he put that one on so it was the only thing I really remember is, is Smokey's murder, but I do remember that uh, that it had that it was well written. And then when I watched it again just recently, and I had to for for several reasons, I had to watch a shitty free version on YouTube, which uh, chopped off the sides of, of the screen, uh, and so I, I just I just gripped my teeth and did it. But even even under those circumstances, this movie resonated with me uh, on, a, on, a, on a pretty deep level. Uh, and I love this kind of filmmaking, and this is filmmaking that is uh, not exclusive to, but very much a part of the 70s, where social, social, uh, I guess I should say social commentary, I want to use a better term than that, uh, social investigation. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you. Was was uh, becoming the norm in Hollywood for films, and this this movie is no exception. It really packs a punch. It packs a wallop, and it's real. And so here here we are. We're watching a movie that is not only a slice of life, and not only going out of its way to be kind of gritty, but also very real problems, very real issues uh, going on. Uh, just off the top of my head, I want to say that uh, I did see on IMDb that Paul Schrader had gone to his home state of Michigan and went to Detroit and interviewed auto workers, and they told him that uh, yeah, management sucks, but that their own their own union was even worse. They I think they said it fucks us every time. Uh, so henceforth, Schrader took that ball and ran with it. And I think he, because he said he had never seen anything tackled like that in a movie before. Um, well, so, 
Yeah. Which is true. I I, I mean, from the time this movie was written and made before I was even alive, it's still, it, I mean, as someone that, you know, I don't want to toot my own arm, I am college educated and I, I have worked a variety of different jobs, but I know I've worked customer service. I've worked with the public. I've never worked with a union, but my only familiarity with 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 union talk has kind of been through the news, through media, you know, stories about Jimmy Hoffa and uh, union corruption. I do know the positives of the unions because my grandfather was a, a union worker for the railroads. But I also have, yeah, so, so I, I, I do know that he was able to provide, but I, I suppose, and this goes to the, to the heart of the movie, it kind of depends on the union itself. And it's pointed out very early by Cliff D. Young's character. He says that your union is the most corrupt in the state, but there's also scenes where the white union rep talks talks to Richard Pryor's character and talks about how he stood on the picket lines. It was people like him, and unfortunately, I mean, the depiction of of the the higher ups in the union are older white men who have achieved a status in this union. And, and, who, and who are very, almost almost blatantly cogs in a very corrupt wheel. It, they are. But going back to my grandfather, I know that he was p- able to provide a life for my mother and her sisters and his wife because of union work. But this is, that was a railroad union. It was, you know, it's very different. I just remember that you know, my parents are originally from New Jersey. I currently reside in Rhode Island. I was born and raised in Rhode Island. But every time that my grandparents would come to visit, they always got the they would always take the train, and it was because of the union they always rode for free. Uh, you know, because of the service that my grandfather had given. So this movie, it it walks a fine line about criticizing the union, but it also shows the positives like we we see the man talk to um to Zeke and says that you know it was people like him that got African Americans you know black Americans to be able to be involved in the union but yeah but yeah, go ahead go ahead go ahead but it's also there's a very predatory nature of these unions would you you know do you know what I'm talking they have Absolutely. and this goes back to something that you had brought up when we previously started recording this episode that I completely forgot. One of the most – so we spend – and it's about an hour into the movie. So we spend the, an hour with these three – our three leads. Zeke and Smokey are both black Americans. Zeke is a not well-educated character who basically has been working his entire life. He's a family man. He's married. He has three kids. Smokey, it's it's hinted at. Well, it's not hinted at. It's he does have some um some legal troubles back in his past, and he's familiar with illegal activity with crime. So he's also our um. And then we have uh, Harvey Keitel's character Jerry, uh, the white Polish working man who who you know who has two jobs 
to barely scrape by to provide for his family. And so we're given these three very distinct personalities. And then they're ultimately pushed to the point where they're all frustrated with where they are in life for various reasons. They all have personal reasons. Um, Zeke gets busted by the IRS and he owes back taxes. Harvey Keitel's character, Jerry, is dealing with personal issues, significantly kind of just scraping by and not being able to provide his daughter with uh, braces that she needs to the point where she tries to make her own braces and, you know, cuts up her teeth and gums. And Smokey is their kind of, um, is kind of their, their, their fun, like, wingman, you know? Um, they talk about how they wouldn't have any fun if Smokey wasn't around. And so they get to the point where, you know, briefly becomes a heist movie for about five minutes. They they try to rob their own union. You know, there's some hijinks, some shenanigans. A guard gets knocked out. We're, we're given some comedic relief with their, their silly costumes. But then we're given, um, when they decide to blackmail the, the union, one of the most telling scenes is we hear these two higher-ups in the union kind of break down their characters. And they all have, they have files on these people and it kind of talks it kind of speaks to um i mean this is the 70s before we had you know you know the internet and all these cell phones and everything you could just imagine so the 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 type of information that they have about all these people broken down into files it's it's kind of unnerving you know thinking back to the time the, the amount of effort and research that must have been put in to this kind of research that they they were they they did about surveillance, basically surveillance. I mean, it's 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 people who you don't even know who know more about you than uh, they should. Right, and it's unnerving. You know, we see these three characters that we we, we grow to like over the course of the movie, and then it's yeah. they're all. Let me, let me, yeah. Let, let me explain for the viewer what Chris is talking about. There is a scene where, uh, okay, so so our three our three buddies uh, when they when they break open the safe they don't find any when they just when they decide to rob their union they break open the safe they don't find any money. What they find is actually a ledger, a notebook that shows uh, how the union I think has been giving loans out with tremendous interest and profiting greatly on this interest which is uh corrupt and i think illegal although that they argue that they debate that in the movie but it's it's definitely it's definitely a uh it's uh it's very damning this ledger and they've got they've got they've got something in their hands now that they can use to blackmail the union which is what they decide to do, uh, or attempt to do. Um, so, so as they're doing this, the, the we don't even really know who it is. If it's the union representatives that we've been seeing in the movie, or if it's the uh, the higher ups in the auto auto factory that they're working in, but they are there. You see, a, you know, you see a hand going through paper files with pictures, with snapshots attached to them, and they do that for our three characters and they're breaking down their care you know their characters talking to each other saying well this one will cave easily if we push hard enough uh this one this one this one will will keep fucking us up even after we give him what he wants 
uh, and that's the one that they end up murdering. Um, you know, so it's this kind of uh, this kind of evaluation that they that they give each character, and they basically succeed um, in dealing with these three individuals based on these evaluations that they that they have for these characters. They end up they end up uh, giving Pryor they they end up giving Zeke uh, what he wants uh, and shutting him up that way, and they end up murdering Smokey, as I said. And then they also um, Inti- they intimidate. I forget what they say about Jerry, but in- eventually Jer- Jerry becomes a pawn in their little chess game as well. Yeah, they result to in- intimidating uh, Jerry. They, you know, they send some some thugs to his house as a, you know. It's not insinuated exactly what these thugs were supposed to do. They were just supposed to show up at Jerry's house. Um. Probably just, you know, kind of like a warning sign. They, it, it, and so, like, we have these three characters, and they're stripped of their names. They're stripped of their personality. They're basically traits of a person that that these union people use to exploit and manipulate um, yeah. with, w- without a care for, you know. You know, there's a psychology behind it. It's like they know their psychology. They do, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think I alluded to it. It's almost, it's, it's kind of reminiscent of like the mafia, kind of in a way. You know that. I'm sorry. Of what? Reminiscent of what? Kind of the mafia. You know that the higher ups are always, oh, yeah. they're always, to, they're always talking about, they're always evaluating the people underneath them and they and similar to the way the mafia kind of manipulates people i i think that it's shown in mafia movies but it was also greatly expanded in the the soprano series about how much like backroom talk there is about someone and i it, you made mention of it. There's yeah. a there's a confrontation at at the plant with Smokey and one of the foremen, and it's resolved. But then you kind of alluded to that. You know that the minute that Smokey left that office, that you know the conversation was going to continue to talk about that. And right, their little their little makeup game. Uh, or what, is it Smokey? It's Zeke. Right when they bring Zeke into the office, yes, Zeke. I'm sorry, not Smokey. Yeah, yeah. they bring Zeke into the office, and uh, you know they they end up patching things up between Zeke and the foreman. Uh, but as Zeke is leaving, yeah, there is at least in my mind there is the suspicion that they're going to keep talking about what to do with Zeke. Um, that that was just a little, you know, that was just a little performance that they gave in the office to appease him for the moment. But long term will be a different story. Uh, now, now, who you know, who knows what their original plans might have been for Zeke, maybe, you know, maybe nothing. But eventually he gets promoted. Uh, and that, that's because he played, that, you know what? He gets promoted because he gives them the ledger, right? Yes. There's a scene, yes. There's a scene between him and Jerry towards the end where Jerry's like, you gave him the notebook, didn't you? So that's, that's Zeke's big sellout. Yeah. You know, I, Zeke, Zeke's name is short for Ezekiel. I did, um, I, 
I don't know the Bible as well as maybe I should, but I did Wikipedia Ezekiel, Ezekiel to find out kind of who he was, and he he prophesized the fall of Jerusalem. Um, really? So hmm. <laughs> I thought that yeah. So I thought that was interesting that you know um, if you want to if you want to you know call his little factory that he's big factory that he's working in you know metaphorically in Jerusalem that ends up falling. I don't know. Maybe that's his correct. No, it's... It, by the way, also means... Uh, I was going right? to say, it's it's not a stretch. Um, so, Paul... I'm sure Paul and his brother, Paul Schrader and his brother, you know, had that in mind when they were writing the screenplay, maybe. They were raised strict Calvinists. They were, ve- yeah. they were very... So, this movie is interesting because a lot of Paul Schrader's screenplays ha- have religious themes and undertones in it. So that's not a stretch at all. He's um okay. He knows what he's talking about. He he talks about in his past he didn't see he was his parents were so strict that he did not see his first movie until he was 17 years old. And he Oh wow. So he was a very so religion wow. and then yeah. And it plays a part in what he does. Absolutely. A lot of his movies, the follow-up to Blue Collar is a movie called Hardcore, which is the story of a very uh, devout religious person that discovers that his daughter has run away from home and because of the religious oppression and repression that he instilled on her, she her act of rebellion is running away to California and doing drugs and starring in pornographic movies and then there's the story of her, her father coming to to rescue her but religion what yeah whoa, 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 whoa. this is what it, this is ostensibly a sequel to blue collar no no follow-up i meant just like a, his follow-up movie there's <laughs> there's there's no, there's no link there's there's no similar characters or anything like that no i just met a, a follow i i I'm mixing up follow-up with sequel. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow. All right. So, no, that's not a stretch at all. The way that you, you, you put it is that I think that we put we put certain figures up on pedestals and we, we kind of strive, some of us, to take over that place, to become that, that figurehead. And that's what happens with Zeke. He becomes, yeah. you know, the whole movie up until the very end, he's the one that's ragging on the foreman. He's the one that's joking about the higher-ups with the other workers until he's given that, that cushy job. Yeah, he does a total 180. And all you, all you need to see is just him at the end of the movie. That's all you see is that scene with him at the very end of the movie with Keitel uh, when he's gotten that promotion. You don't see that promotion really in action uh, up until that point. Nope. And he, and he it's a total 180. It's a total 180. You're just like, wow. And, you know, <laughs> wow. Because he's the most he's the most out, outspoken of the three. He's the one that stands up at the union meeting yeah. at the very beginning and talks about like what bullshit it is that um his locker's been broken for six months and yes. they want. They want volunteers on their days off to be to be putting out pamphlets. He's the most outspoken one, and he's the one that makes that one eighty. And 
He's been shredding. He's been shredding his finger <laughs> for the past six months, opening his locker because there's no lock on it. So he has to put his finger inside and cut it up to open the locker. <laughs> now, what's what's up with? That? I mean, could, can we draw any like phallic, Freudian type of <laughs> parallels with this about just like because we. We did that, even though even though we never got a podcast for After Hours uh, released, we did talk about this type of thing in After Hours, where it's just like mutilating the penis. I'm just wondering if his finger <laughs> could be some sort of metaphor for just like <laughs> penis mutilation. You can edit this out if you want. No, because, well... <laughs> but I mean, it's just, it's such a, you know, that is how we start out with meeting and he's just like my finger is torn up from having to open my locker with it you know for the past six months and you won't fix it i i i don't want to speculate on the the psychology the mindset of paul schrader i have noticed though he has a very weird way of writing women in his movies it's and i don't I, it's it's interesting because there's hardly there's hardly any major female character in this movie. And the closest I can think of is Kaita, is Jerry's wife. Exactly. And his best known movie at this time was Taxi Driver, which the, male dominated. Exactly. And a lot of his movies, most he's he usually directs scripts that he writes. Blue Collar is one of them. But I think the only movie that I've seen him direct that has a lead female character uh, was the 1980s Cat People movie. And he didn't write that script. It's a very female-dominated um, picture, but he didn't write that script. So I'm, you know, again, I don't want to speculate on the subconscious. I don't want to play Dr. Freud with Paul Schrader, but... But knowing his background, knowing that, you know, very religious upbringing, you know, not seeing movies until you were 17 and then almost like overcompensating for that in college, he became certainly certainly in terms of never being allowed to watch a movie until he was 17. All of a sudden now, not all of a sudden, but, you know, he was destined to become a movie director based on that, it looks like. Right. And about making, you know, compensating for. Lost time. So, yeah, and like I said, not only that, but before he was a screenwriter, he was a movie critic. He, he, you know, that's like the job he had before he started writing screenplays himself. So, he, like, it's almost Paul, like... Paul yes, yeah. So it's almost like, like he found his calling, but it was like so late in life that it clicked. And like I said, it's almost like an overcompensating thing is like he went from not being able to see movies to where his job is nothing but watching movies and, and writing about them and talking about them. And again, I don't want to speculate on the psychology, but I do think it's very interesting that if you look over the catalog of his movies, they're very male dominated. The female characters are generally pretty not submissive they're very passive they don't really have a lot to do other than i haven't seen everything that he's directed i mean american gigolo with richard gear is about you know an american gigolo like taxi driver is about a taxi driver yeah 
Yep. So, Paul, <laughs> did Paul Schrader write the screenplay for American Gigolo? I believe so. I'm I'm pretty sure. I I, I don't want to say. That's interesting. I mean, to go from Taxi Driver to American Gigolo. Plus, uh, like I mentioned, the movie Hardcore that was you know, <laughs> in between those two, and we can get into it, but like. I'll just mention this briefly, and now you know what I'm gonna save it. I I think we should cover cat people at a different time. I ha I have a very interesting story about cat people, but let's let's stick with blue collar because we'll get completely off track. All right. Um. All right. All right. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I I also want to mention, uh, and I wish I had rewatched the beginning and the end just to just to get exactly what is said. But it's talking about division and how the implication is that division uh, is the name of the game and it makes people easier to control. Do you, I mean, do you, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you remember this? It's at the beginning and the end. Yeah, and I... By the end, it has made its point. By the end, it's made its point by dividing uh, our, our main characters who were inseparable, you know, before, before they had to go their own ways. I mean... We're talking about guys that share, I mean, I guess it was the 70s, I wouldn't know, but like, it's almost like a stereotypical 70s party. Uh, Zeke and Jerry sneak off. Uh, Smokey's, you know, he's not married, he doesn't have kids, so they all go to Smokey's apartment. There's cocaine, there's pot, there's booze, and whip. I was gonna just, yeah. So th we're talking about guys that share everything together. They share women, and there's even a joke afterwards about it's like a not it's like a throw off joke about STDs <laughs> afterwards after the party. He's like, Do you have any like are you do you have any ill effects from the party? He's like, No, why? He's like, oh, I guess it's just like another case of penicillin for me or something. Like some kind of joke and he makes some you know, he says all those girls were clean. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I vaguely I don't know if I remember that. That they're having a, a, a good old time definitely together they have that's a and there's a that's right they're actually they're actually it's might as well be an orgy they're having sex right in front of each other so yeah the scene the scene where they're coming down from all of it the, the sun has risen and they're sitting around and they're coming off their drugs and they've you know shot their wads I guess and they're just talking and it's and once again we're getting very real here the the banter between all of them uh becomes very real it's funny when i was watching this on on that shitty free youtube version uh, it's i guess all three of them are on the couch together and they're talking the only one i could see was harvey Keitel. like he's the one in the middle i guess he's the cream in the oreos yeah he's the cream in the oreo sandwich <laughs> he's the cream in the oreo <laughs> they, they get called. That's right. They get called the Oreo yeah. gang by the papers after they do their robbery. Yeah, I just want to. I just want to disclose for people listening. That's that's not. A, that's not us making a racist joke. That's that we're talking about actual oh, dialogue yeah. for the. Okay, all right. That's actual dialogue for the movie. In college, in college that I mean, college back in the eighties, like the the black guys that Billy Porter, Billy Porter was one of my classmates in college and he would talk about we're gonna have oreos tonight talking about menage a trois with like a white guy okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay. Anyway, sorry. that's tmi okay, <laughs> okay. When, the, 
when the, but the three of them, the three of them are talking as they're coming down from their party, and at one point, Richard Pryor's character Zeke says, "Man, sometimes I just get real depressed." And I don't know why. I mean, that is such a simple statement, but I don't know why that resonated with me so much. Because probably because you don't really hear that in movies. If you hear that now, it's usually in conjunction to taking medication on a television commercial or something. But just to hear uh, a character in the movie just being just saying it, like I get real depressed and starting to talk about why. It reminds me of. Tina, of all comparisons, it reminds me of Tina Louise's scene in Stepford Wives. I don't think you've seen the original Stepford Wives. We'll cover it at some point on on our podcast. But it's uh, uh, Catherine Catherine Ross and Paula Prentice are uh, trying to get to know the women in in the town, and they go and they visit Tina Louise, and um, she starts opening up. She oh, they have a they have a they have a get together with all the wives in the in the neighborhood. And all the wives can do is talk about, you know, cleaning products. But Tina Louise actually starts opening up about her marital problems. And I I appreciate this so much in movies when characters do this. Um, maybe because I feel like I don't see it enough in my own life, except with my very good friends. Well, um, you know, so, so it's just a moment in Blue Collar that establishes it as a very human film especially with those three characters and i think that reason that that scene resonates so well is because you get the feeling that up until this point you know they they complain about their union they they complain about it's it's kind of like but they kind of put up a macho front and it seems that like this coming down scene it's just them like exposed and so raw and they you believe that their friendship and relationship is so close that you actually believe that these three would actually feel like because they are like they are kind of like macho macho man but you believe that they could actually be this real this open this honest this raw with only each other yeah yeah yes very good point and that and therein lies the crux of the, the the heart of this movie, and so, yeah, and so when they have realized that they've gone that they're in over their head with this blackmail deal that they're that they're doing with the union, and they say to each other, I think it's Smokey because Smokey knows crime better than the other two, and he says, you know what, uh, the word is out about us, even though they haven't busted us the word is out like it's in the papers we can't even be seen together anymore people you know now people know about three guys two black and one white who uh did this did this you know this robbery that is now becoming whatever it's becoming now but anyway he's just like we can't even be we can't even be seen together anymore we got to go our separate ways Ooh. And it's just not, you know, and all three of them feel the pain of that. Uh, and we do too. Yeah. We do too as the viewer. Because like, what, what? you grow. Richard Pryor's acting is excellent in this movie, I think, across the board. I can't believe, we'll talk later about his antics uh, behind the cameras. 
but I mean, despite the fact, despite all of that, um, his performance is excellent. And in that particular scene, you really feel him being like, "What? This is what? No, I can't. I've lost my friends. I've lost you guys now. What? It, it, you don't spend that much time with these characters together because the the movies, you know, it it's it's over two hours long, but it doesn't. But we had these like. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's like 140 minutes. But like we we get the little scenes, we get the party scene, we get to see them relate. We see lots of scenes of them just shooting the shit after work, drinking beers, complaining. We get the scene with um Zeke and Jerry taking their respective wives out bowling with the kids. Yep. You get these little like you get these little slices of life that make up a food analogy. It makes up like it's like a, a a little slice of pizza that makes up the entire pizza pie of the their relationship. And then these pieces are like ripped apart. We see the pieces. We see it's like you see the puzzle coming together, but then the movie says, "Well, this these are like the actual ramifications of of their actions." And you see the the pieces fall apart. And as much as I, you don't like the 180 that Zeke does, it's very believable. I, I know people like that. They will do anything to rise up, rise up the ranks. There's even, there's the scene on the porch after. So let's talk about what the union's plans for, for dealing with these three are after the blackmail. They say that Smokey's the one that's going to keep fucking with them. Even if he's like, even if we give him everything that they want, he's not going to stop. It's never enough for him. He's a two-time loser. He's got nothing else to lose. He's going to keep going at it. So they... they, they... That's, yeah, that's how they phrase it. That's that's how they phrase it. Exactly, yeah. So they kill him. Um, yeah. it, it's it's played off as an industrial accident, but basically it's... And, and again, going back to the mafia, it's, it's, it's set up like a mafia hit. Like he's told by one... Yeah. He's told by a foreman that they need help in one of the painting bays where they just spray paint all over the car to color it. Then you see one of the um, the forklift loaders go park the forklift in front of the, the door so he can't get out. It's it's an arranged hit. It's like a mafia, it's a, like a mafia hit. It's all set up. Yeah. And yeah. they frame it as an industrial accident. So they're like, all right, we got Smokey. It's interesting going back to the, the surveillance, I guess. And even before we see the files... When when Zeke Richard Pryor's character actually goes to complain about his locker, the guy mentions he goes like Zeke, you remind me of me when I you know when I was your age, and we've been watching you for a long time. So these kinds of like it's yeah. it it's the way that it's scripted, the way that it's filmed, the way that it's edited, like it's all it's all purposeful dominoes set up to eventually knock one player down. Oh, yeah. Keep one player in check. They know that Jerry is the one that um he'll fold. He's a family man. He loves his wife. We we assert a little bit of pressure, a little intimidation. He's gonna fall into line. Zeke, he we give him a little taste of power. He's gonna eat it right up. It's gonna be a soft, cushy job. It's kind of like what they say, um, like a, a puppet regime. Like there's nothing. It's yeah. it's the. He's given just enough power that he he thinks that he's a bigger cog in the machine, although he's not. It's just to appease him. It's just to keep yeah. him, it's to keep him in his lane. Yeah, and his life will be much more comfortable now. Definitely. The, 
that's a key ingredient. He f- he feels that okay, I'm a black man. Yeah, yeah. He's got he's got just a, and they even say, it's funny because we get this scene. They're like, well, how much power can you take? And he says right to it, as much as you can give me. And and I think that that's just like music to their ears that they know that we can give him a crumb. He thinks it's a feast. We know that it's an appetizer for a main course that oh, we're right. we're never we're right. we're never gonna give him. Forgot about that. Yep. Now, so it's all about division. It's all about people staying in their lane. It's handled so well. You kind of get the feeling that. And I don't, again, I don't want to speculate on the psychology of characters. It's Smokey, like, has a, like, such a big heart. He, like, goes out of his way, you know, through some plot convenience. He discovers that some thugs are on their way to to Jerry's house. And, you know, he, he shows up at the house and, you know, beats up the thugs. And when he dies, Jerry takes it the hardest. Like, we don't know their their history, their past. But through conversations at the bar mostly, it seemed that Zeke and Smokey were friendlier, I would think. But Jerry's the one that takes Smokey's death really <clears throat> to heart more. He's the one that's really upset about it. <clears throat> but it's like, there, there's, there's, hint, there's hints of dialogue that, you know... Zeke knows about Smokey's past. I think one of the first scenes in the bar, you know, Smokey's talking up some women and, um, you know, Zeke invites him over to talk about like some of the, you know, the bad shit that he got to back in the day. But I mean, there is a scene Zeke's upset, but and he confronts them and he said, you know, you promised me that they were going to be okay. And they said, well, it was an accident. Was it, we've, had, we've been having meetings all day about this. It was an industrial accident. So-and-so's going to lose their job. But that means that there's an opportunity for you. And, like, as soon as that opportunity is mentioned, okay, my friend is dead, but you know what? This, this is my chance. This is what I've been – this is what I want. It's, it's actually – it's actually – it becomes a blood sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to take – I don't, I don't want to take, take it there. But, I mean, when you think about it, like Smokey dies, Zeke gets the promotion. <laughs> it's just like what, what, yeah. And and then there's the scene on the porch with Jerry and Zeke talking, and Jerry's uh, Zeke says, "Well, this means I can give you an." He talks. They're talking about families, and why is my family more important than your family? That kind. Of, there's there's that kind of talk. There's racial talk. That there's more. You're going to have more opportunities because you're white. This is my one opportunity. I have to take it. But I can help you and I can get you a cushy job like I got a cushy job. And Harvey Keitel's reaction is just like he mimics the uh, the knife in the back. Mimics the knife in the back? What do you mean? He like, what? You know how the, the saying, you know, you put a knife in my back? Yeah. Maybe you couldn't see it on the YouTube, but the scenes cut out. Like, he, he makes, he, like, smirks at him, and he goes, nah. And, like, he, he mimics, like, pulling a knife out of his back. Like, there's not literally a knife. Wow. I don't think I did. I think that might have been chopped off the screen. Oh. Wow. Oh, man, that's pretty heavy. Yeah. That's wild. I mean, okay, so, so let's talk about Jerry for a minute, How Harvey Keitel's character. So, Jerry, Jerry... Jerry pretty much holds on to his um, eth- ethical 
His integrity. Ethical, ethical identity, let's put it that way. Um, pretty much till the end. And he does break out of the the plan from the higher-ups, the, you know... If the higher-ups are saying that he will, he's got a family and he will cave quickly because he doesn't want to create too many big waves, I mean, Jerry has pretty much broken out of that by the end because he's got a court case going on, it looks like, with the factory and with, with probably the union. Am I right? Yes. There's the scene he sent... He, he, sends, his, uh, he sends his wife and kids out, out to visit some relatives. He spends a couple paranoid nights at home. You know, he's, he's, he, we see like the ashtray full up with cigarettes. He's sitting there chain smoking with a gun. He, you know, every time a car drives by the house, he's very paranoid. And it t- turns out that he wa- was right to be paranoid because it seems like he's going to, and he talks about it with the, the AG. He's like, maybe I'll just go to Canada. It can't be any worse there. And there's that scene where it, like, he, it looks like he's going to drive and try to escape to Canada. And this car pulls up alongside him. The window rolls down and follow. Yeah. So that person, okay, so when that happens, because a car is following him, turns into more of a chase, and when the car pulls up beside him, you see in the background, and it's blurry, but it's it's a figure with a gun. Yeah, he's got a shotgun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Aiming, aiming a gun at him before he pedals, he pedals the gas and out, out drives them. Yep. And then, um, yeah, there's a little bit of a chase. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, cr- <laughs> And then, yeah, he sees the sign for Canada. He sees the exit for Canada. Yeah. The, and, uh, I guess he doesn't take it. But, yeah, you can tell that the wheels are turning. Oh, no. He was going to take it. They, he ends up crashing before he can make it. To You see it. I feel – I'm sorry that you had to watch, like, a YouTube cut. <laughs> You're probably missing some of the visual stuff. But there's a big sign. Like, he's headed for – it's called the Tunnel, Tunnel to Canada. And he's almost there. Car's chasing him. He crashes, the other car crashes, a, a cop had started following them, and the cop pulls him out of the car, and he says, I want to, con- I, I need to confess, like, I, I need to confess, this is what's going on, and he tells them the name of the government agent t- to contact, and then the movie wraps up that, um, yeah, uh, he goes to the plant, I guess, to just re- retrieve some personal belongings from his locker, and then we get. The- and, he's, and he's flanked with a couple of lawyers. Uh, well, the uh, he's flanked with. Um, I I don't even think they're lawyer. I think they're FBI agents. One of them is definitely yeah. some sort of law. Okay. Um, yeah, for protection reasons. And um, yep. You get one of them calling. I I guess he has the show- showdown with Richard Pryor. But yeah, so he's the the final scene of the movie is. The, the um and and through the dialogue we find out yet yeah, you don't say actually one of the agents says to Jerry says don't say anything to him don't say anything you'll see him in court you know that's where we deal with it it starts off with scab traitor and then it quickly escalates to some some heavy end bombs and cracker and honky and then we get we get the the final freeze frame scene of um, Jerry like swinging with a punch, and it looks like Richard Pryor Zeke's character's got some sort of pipe in his hand, and it freeze frames right before right before they clash. Whoa! And 
it stops, and then we... Oh, so they're about to... They're about to fuck each other up bad. Oh, yeah. And... Fuck. This, so, the scene in the movie... That was envisioned the entire time as the climax. Uh, Paul Schrader's idea was to have this final scene that we see that it their relationship and their friendship has dissolved to the point where they're coming to to physical violence. They're about ready to... Sh- to stop each other the fbi agents are holding back jerry the other the union workers are holding back zeke and we got a freeze frame we got and then we hear the smoky um voice i think it's smoky i'm pretty sure it's smoky talking from the grave about division and staying in your lane and know your place that's incredible i mean that's just genius i think that's i think that's i think that's brilliant it is brilliant uh my only my only critique is that we you see this climax, and I get it's so powerful, it's so moving, it's so earned in the actual movie, but for some reason, it's in the trailer for this movie. So if you watch the trailer for this movie, the the tra- the tra- the trailer for this movie ends the way that this movie ends, and thankfully i'm one of those people that i've i've come to have a very love hate relationship with trailers a well-made trailer is a great advertisement for your movie it's a great way to get people invested this trailer and i put this up on our our website if you check out this movie do not watch the trailer first because the emotional impact of that scene is greatly diminished because it's thrown in at the end of a, a minute and a half of usual trailer stuff. Wow. Wow. I mean, that that is a very powerful tableau to freeze on at, at the end of the film. It really is. Uh, now, now that we're talking, now that we're kind of like going off um, about the, the movie, uh, now, that, now that we're talking about the movie and the way that it, it's been publicized, why don't you... Why don't you riff on that for a little bit? Okay. I know you've got a lot to say, including the poster, which is very uh, weird and misleading. Right. Yeah. So even before we get to the, uh, well, I don't know if we should talk about the advertising first or just like the amount of tension that <laughs> was uh, like on display behind the cameras. Like, unfortunately, the since this was the seventies, they weren't thinking about dvd and blu-ray extras there would have been behind the scenes footage there would have been a making of documentary i would have loved to see some of the behind the scenes footage of this movie because this movie while there is no violence between any of the main characters on screen within each other there was plenty of violence behind the scenes (laughs) richard Pryor pulled a gun at one point on the director uh, claiming that he couldn't do any more than three takes. Harvey Keitel got so upset with Richard Pryor's constant improv that he flung a full ashtray at the camera, ruining the take, and Pryor and his bodyguard proceeded to pin Harvey Keitel to the floor and and start beating on him. Yafet Kodo... Yeah. Keep going. Yafet Koto got was very upset with Pryor's improv because of um he kept losing his place as a character. And I've I've heard this a lot about actors getting along with other actors when it comes to improv. If you have a character if you have an actor that's skilled in improv going up against an actor that's not that's that's 
kind of trained just to do their lines to know when they're supposed to be talking and not like riff on stuff there's a lot of examples of that one of the most famous ones that i could think of in most recent history there was a movie from the clerks and Mallrats director kevin smith he did a movie with bruce willis and tracy morgan tracy morgan had a history on saturday night live as a stand-up comedian was very gifted in improv and bruce willis in the later part of his career, kind of just phones it in. So, like, there was a lot of tension behind the scenes on that movie because one one act, one actor was. I'm sorry. No, no, I can I can say a couple things about this. Okay. Uh, first, first of all, the irony of of this is that there are there are <laughs> there are unions for the screenwriters, uh, and there are people on set. Probably not so much in the 70s, but definitely now. I've seen it. I've been there. Um, who will make sure that the actors get every single word right. I mean, there are unions for that, you know, in movies now. Now, when you've got a star, when you've got a big-time star who's known for improv, um, then, yeah, then, then, then it's going to be a different story, and I'm not quite sure exactly how that's handled. However, I did do some closed set background work for uh, The Dictator with Sasha Baron Cohen. Okay. That's the, is that the name of the movie? Yes, it is. Well, it, okay, so... That, that's the more, one of the... It was, it, was under, it was under a different title when it was being filmed, but I think it was released as The Dictator. Okay. So there was a closed set uh, uh, scene in a hotel lobby with Sasha Baron Cohen and... John C. Riley and Ben Kingsley. And so they would do the scene as scripted. And they would do as many takes as they felt, you know, were needed for that. And then they would do the scene again and they would improv. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting that they had both. They had the scripted and then they had the improv scene. I, uh, I think they could use, you know, splice together. That's very, very common I've seen in, in more recent history with with comedies uh, because they're not shooting they're not shooting on film so they don't have to worry about the amount of film that they're they're using. So if they're using oh. digital cameras and they're just recording onto um, some memory, a lot of modern comedies, what they'll do is they'll do the screen, uh, they'll do the scene as scripted, then they'll just do the scene improved and I, I, there's a lot of it's very common I think it really started with oh god what's the na guy's name Judd Apatow is kind of famous for doing that a lot of his movies like a lot of the bonus features on the DVDs and Blu-rays it's called Linorama where an actor will say the same line but it'll be a, like a goofy take on it and you know it's just a joke and and I get the feeling that behind the scenes like Everyone comes from a comedy background, so they'll they'll say, well, instead of saying it smells like Bigfoot's dick, say it smells like a diaper full of Indian food, that kind of stuff. And but, <laughs> so, but Paul Schrader, this was his, um, you know, he doesn't come from a a comedy background. Like he, none of his his movies do have some some humor within it but 
I think I get the feeling from conversations with him that he's he's kind of like the script is the Bible kind of director. He seems to have loosened up in more recent years, but I think I get the. He he was really. St- I mean, obviously, he was really stressed out during the filming of Blue Collar, and he must have been stressed out by prior doing uh, a lot of improv. If he felt, you know, he's a screenwriter and he's doing his first direct, his directorial debut uh, with his own script, that yeah, I can see how that would have been difficult for him. He had a meltdown, didn't he? He did. Yes. And this is not the first time that he had a meltdown. I can only imagine that it was creative and personal tension. I believe that his marriage was kind of on the rocks at this period. I'm not sure. He's been married a couple times. There's also substance abuse issues on both his end and on Richard Pryor's end. Uh, Richard Pryor, when they started filming, had been off cocaine at some point during the filming, went back on cocaine. In that party scene, they used sweet and low. Well, the crew thought it was sweet and low. Apparently, some of the cocaine on display in this movie was actual cocaine, which le- which led to, to they said what, like I said, he literally pulled a gun. Richard, why would you have a? And, and this couldn't be more timely with the whole fucking Alec Baldwin actually Baldwin. killing someone with a, a what they thought was a prop gun. Richard Pryor had a real gun on set. Again, this was a different time. This is the late 70s. Like, I don't know. I wasn't alive at the time, so I can't really... I mean, Richard Pryor was also at the height of his stardom. I, we're talking 1978, and I think I mentioned that 1978 is the same year as The Wiz and Car Wash, and he basically has only cameos in those two movies. But, I mean, already that's three movies that are high-profile right. for him in one year. Um, you know, big star. He's got bodyguards on set. Uh, and he's, you know, he's he's a boy from the hood, so he's gonna have a gun. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, but I mean, I maybe I shouldn't be laughing. Maybe there's nothing to laugh about. But I would just have loved to have been a fly on the wall. And you just said you you did you wish you had been too. When he did pull out that gun and say to the direct say to Schrader, no more than three takes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wonder, you know, and I wonder how Schrader was was operating as a director, maybe as a first-time director. Maybe he was putting his actors through a little bit more than uh, they would have been put through otherwise with, you know, a more seasoned director. So, so there, you know, it could have been a justified outbreak, even though it's, it's one of those instances where the outbreak greatly overshadows the cause of it. So I guess we could just say thankfully that nobody was, you know, seriously hurt behind the scenes. Um, but speaking of Paul Schrader, again, right, he's not a seasoned director. I think he kind of, I guess that he he was on set quite a bit with uh, with Taxi Driver. But Martin Scorsese... And Robert De Niro had it like an established rapport already when doing the taxi when doing Taxi Driver. I believe they had done at least a two or two movies before that together. So they had like an under an an unspoken relationship with each other. I think directing wise, and so maybe he thought, but it would be easier 
but like you said, if you have a coked up, not egotistical because he's a very gifted comedian and actor, but if you have Richard Pryor, who's, you know, at the, you know, one of the best well-known comedians, actors at this time, I, I, I would think that he, he's got a bit of an ego with him going along with it. That being well, yeah, I mean, and, it, and it's part—it's part and parcel of, of the substance too. I mean, sure, cocaine is going to give you an ego. If but you do it on a regular basis. Oh, absolutely. Well, I would—I yeah. don't know personally. But I've seen people on cocaine. I know people that have issues with cocaine. Um, but Paul Schrader also—I I just want to mention this—kind of brought this upon himself. He, there's a quote from him that said when it came to Harvey Keitel, Richard Pryor, and Yafet Kodo, that he hired three bulls to come into a China shop, but he had promised each of these bulls that they would be the lead in this movie. Now, what the hell? Is that what he had to do to get them on board? I, and, then, and, then, and then they're on board and they realize what the real deal is, that it's more of an ensemble pick. It's, so, I mean, there's going to be resentment. Absolutely. You're, yeah. and that's what I said. Uh, that's why I wanted to mention it. You're, yeah, right. you're setting your you're yeah. setting yourself up for a disaster. There, if you and, and like I said, I think that a Scorsese, a more seasoned director, someone with a couple movies under his belt, would know better than to say that to any actor, regardless of their stature at the time. You don't promise three people the lead of the. That's like promising three people. Like, that's like promising Alfred the butler that you're going to be the lead alongside Batman. And that's just... This is an ensemble... This is such an ensemble movie. There's not... This is not Taxi Driver, where we spend every single frame of the movie with Robert De Niro, with Travis Bickle. This is an ensemble movie. We have separate... Each character kind of has, like, their, their moment to shine. We have... Jerry having this breakdown when he sees what his daughter has done to her, done to her mouth trying to make a braces. We see Zeke, portrayed by Richard Pryor, trying to fool an IRS agent that he has six kids instead of three. We see Smokey have this, like, where he's, like, the, the, the cool guy that everyone knows in the neighborhood, and he talks down... Um, talks down one of his buddies that's trying to sell him like cheap watches and he talks them down and he's the one that he's the fun loving guy and then he gets his moment to shine when he saves Jerry's family this is an ensemble piece this is not one movie so if you're telling three actors that are all hungry like relatively new in the business so to speak that these aren't the most established actors at the time they would all go on to to have great success but if you're promising all three of them, it's almost like the actual plot of the movie with these three characters combusting behind the scenes when their characters are combusting on screen when the union manipulates yeah. them. Through, through, some, through, some form, through some form of manipulation, of, you know, realizing that they're being manipulated, it's happening in the plot of the movie and it's happening behind the scenes as well. If that's, if that's truly the case, if that's one of the main sources of the uh, of the tension behind the scenes yeah you know and then let's let's talk about the movie poster for a minute because it's it makes no sense no it makes no sense 
No. Pryor's face on it twice when there are three of them starring in the movie in an ensemble piece. I saw another poster that I think is more recent that I really liked of the silhouettes of the three of them pushing up a car, like a car lift in a mechanic's garage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. I liked that. You know, that would have been a good one. But what what the hell was up with this? So showing two faces in a movie poster. You think it's you think that he's playing twins or something if you look at that poster. So let's talk about this poster. The poster is bright red. The the only so it's mostly red. There's not any like background to it. It's just a red poster. Two pictures of Richard Pryor, like you said. One where he's like he's got a silly like Richard Pryor smile on his face, like he's up to like hijinks and shenanigans, and then you got like a more serious grim look. The only distinguishing thing, like if you look at it closely, because throughout the course of the movie, for for safety reasons, working on the assembly line, he sometimes puts on glasses to shield his eyes from sparks and whatnot. But like you said, it's almost like they're playing twins. It's just like you got an ensemble movie. I hate to say the copy that I have, um, the cover is just Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor. Um, one of the other movie posters shows the three of them on screen. But the most prominent one, and it was the cover, I believe, of the VHS that, that came out back in the 70s. It's just Richard Pryor. And then there's a quote hyping up like how this movie captures the comedic brilliance of Richard Pryor and I do not want to diminish the 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 humor in this movie because more often than not the humor works the humor lands and that's because of Richard Pryor probably because of his riffing and improv one of my favorite lines from him is well you could flick my bick that he says to one of the union workers it it does have moments of humor if you saw this, if if I was going, if I was back at the rental store, strolling through Blockbuster, the local mom and pop, and I saw this movie, first of all, it would probably be set in the drama section. No, it would probably be set in the comedies when it should be in the drama section. But yeah. but then you yeah. see you see Richard Pryor. You have this quote about now. I think that I read a review somewhere. It's not from where they got this quote from, but a lot of times that the comedy in Richard Pryor movies didn't really match the kind of comedy that he did with his stand-up material. Stand-up material was very realistic, very gritty, very from-the-streets kind of comedy, and that's the kind of humor that is delivered in this movie, but it's not It's not a comedy. If you had... If you had and, and I don't... I don't like genre splitting. Yes, arguments can be made, but if I if you had to pick if you had to pick one genre, you only had to pick one. You couldn't say, "Well, it's a drama with dark humor." This is a drama. Plain and simple. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know what? It's it's a, it's a social commentary drama as well. I need to I need to drop some names of some other flicks that that I think of with this movie. Please. Please. Uh, okay, cool. So it's been compared to On the Waterfront. I like a very bad cinemaphile. I have never seen On the Waterfront. I need to see On the Waterfront. It's been compared to that. I believe On the Waterfront deals with uh, unions. Yes. Yep. Reminds me of. Yeah. It also reminds me of a movie called Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is uh, 
excellent, excellent film that no one knows about. Uh, but that deals with uh, that deals with unions as well, and and the people actually the people rising up against the corruption of the unions. So those two movies. Also, there are a couple uh, movies from the seventies: Fun with Dick and Jane and Claudine with Diane Carroll, where the main characters are actually dealing with uh, the welfare department and the the corruption and the well, you know, the corruption of the welfare department as well, and and. It's almost like the frustrations are the same. It's, and I found that very interesting that the, the frustrations that you would have on welfare with that system could be similar to the frustrations that you have uh, with a union uh, when you're working a blue-collar job. Uh, it's just, it can be, it, what, it, what it boils down to is bureaucracy, red tape, and gridlock most of the time. Absolutely. If you scratch beneath the surface, if you actually try to, you know, and then you're right. And then if you scratch beneath the surface and you try to actually get somewhere with, you know, uh, with these systems, it can backfire on you real bad. bad. And it comes back to that, you know. When I say get somewhere, go ahead. No, it's it's, it's interesting because these characters are just scraping by. They they don't have these, like... They don't like their motives, their aspirations, their dreams are not ridiculous. They're not anything that anyone wouldn't wouldn't want. You want to be able as a father to provide your your daughter with braces if she needs braces. You want to be able to um Zeke comments about he doesn't care what's on the television. He's he saved up three years to buy this television, so we're going to watch it every single night, regardless. He goes even when the channels go off, I'm going to watch the fuzz on the screen. Like, they have very, like, they have very, like, they just want, they just want to be able to provide. They want some lever, level of comfort. Harvey Keitel doesn't want to be able to, he doesn't want to work two jobs. There's a, there's one of the lines in the movies, like, I promised I wouldn't work on my vacation. And Richard Pryor gets busted by the IRS that he, he helped the, helped a friend paying a house and he got paid he got paid under the table for you know or actually if the IRS found out about it he didn't get paid under the table regardless he's just trying to he's just trying to scrape by you know well and, and he's given a figure he's given a figure of how much he owes because of some some bullshit reason I think it's 25 and it's a ridiculous figure $2,500 I think yeah, which I mean, you know, d- doesn't seem ridiculous now, but back then, and especially if you just didn't—if you don't have that—it's a ridiculous figure. And and you know, and you see it, you see it in Richard Pryor. I I love Richard Pryor's performance in this movie. It's brilliant. You know, I mean, you know, we're talking—it it really is. So we're talking about what he did, you know, his off-screen antics, um, you know, and what was going on with him personally and professionally at this time in his career. Uh, but I mean, when you just sit down and watch the movie, he's—it's all him. Like I mean, when it's all, I'm not saying the movie's all him. I'm saying his acting is all him. It's he's transparent. Like you see right through. Um, you see, he's transparent with everything he's feeling. He, you, character. you stop seeing Richard. I, I think during that moment when he's given that ridiculous figure by the IRS, you're just—he's just like. You see, he's so 
at a loss. How in the world am I going to get that money? How in the world am I going to get that money? Right. You know, and he, yeah, and he asks, you know, and of course the IRS guy is just like, well, that's not my problem. But but you, you really feel it with him. And, and I love the other two leads as well. I think their acting was excellent. But somehow, maybe it's just because I felt like I was watching Richard Pryor. Maybe he wasn't even acting. He was just being himself. But it was just so raw and so real. I... I was just gonna say that, I, and, and I don't. I I like Harvey Keitel. I think he's a good actor. I still saw Harvey Keitel as as Jerry. Yeah, um, Yafet Kodo. Uh, the stuff I've seen, I haven't seen that much. In, I I know he's one of my favorites from the original Alien. I, I can't speak too much about other movies that I've oh, seen. Alien. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, he was great. Alien. I maybe it's because I I don't know if this was a a part of the filmmaker. I always think Richard Pryor, and I see the mustache. But he, this is one of the few movie roles where he doesn't have a mustache. Like it's, it's it makes it and it makes them look like thirty years younger. Not only that, but like after a while, I saw I didn't see Richard Pryor anymore. I saw Zeke. That's how good his performance is. Like he's just like he became. And I I I don't know if it was the cocaine. I don't know if it was the tension. Like he just. It's almost like the. It's it's like good acting is so flawless in a way that you don't see that this person is. I mean, I had an I had an act. I had an act. Are you are you talking? No, you. Okay, so I had I had an acting teacher once that was just like you don't want people saying what a great actor you are. Oh, he's such a good actor. You don't you don't want that. You want them to watch your performance and and then not know where their car keys. Are or where they park their car, like to be that out of it from your performance. You so it's just, you, you know the difference. You know what I'm trying to say. I I do yes. Um, I I don't have nearly as much acting experience as you. I did all children's theater as a as a child, and I did some acting in in high school. But I just as a movie fan, like I'm able to recognize, and not to. I'll just you name know when, when someone is so in character and so natural that you forget about. The fact that they're acting or that they're an actor. Right, exactly. Um, That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And Pryor does go there with this. And it's a a performance that I I just wish that he did. My familiarity with with Richard Pryor is mainly through his stand-up, but also he did a bunch of movies with um, Gene Wilder. Those are the kind of Richard Pryor movies that I was familiar with. And... Of course, I saw Superman three, which uh, I, Super Superman and Richard Pryor don't need to be in a movie together. That's all I'll say about Superman three. <laughs> but I wish, and I'm glad that this movie exists because if anyone ever says Richard Pryor can't handle it, couldn't, or yeah, couldn't. Uh, unfortunately, he's passed. Couldn't handle dramatic material. I would just, I, I will die on this hill that Blue Collar is proof positive that that this man delivered a dramatic role like yes and even watching it on um again unfortunately you had to watch it on youtube but just it's just it 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 should be shown in like uh, i don't teach dramatic classes but this is this is the kind of performance that you don't see you just don't see anymore and not to say that this is a product of the time this movie is just as relevant in the 70s as it is now with unions and blue collar and being cogs in the machine and corruption and corruption and 
people getting fed up with not making enough money, and so they just refuse to. They're like, you know what? I'm gonna go on. I'm gonna get more money from unemployment, or I'm gonna get more money on welfare than I am working right. your middle, your minimum wage job. Right. Even, even when it comes to insurance, even when it comes to insurance, you're you're honestly, technically, better off being on welfare, being on Medicaid, you know, or or being on disability, being on Medicare, than you are paying into a health plan. I mean, it's your, because those health plans will just will, they'll screw you. So so it's just you know it's one thing after another let me let me also while i i mentioned a few, few movies in comparison before let me let, let me throw in a couple more real quick please go ahead there's, um yeah there's how to succeed the high cost of living which is a comedy starring three women um that came out around the same time and the three women uh they they do a little robbery of their own and they succeed they get away with it but the but the whole you know the whole the whole uh setup is that it's the late seventies and it's really hard to make ends meet and um, how do you how do you beat this? So I thought that was that was a uh, that that sprung to mind with in comparison with blue collar. Um, there's another one I wanted to mention. What is it? Oh, maybe I'll think of it. Yeah. Well, let's start um, wrapping it up. We're we're actually nearing if. For, for whatever reason you haven't watched this movie and you're listening to the show, I always encourage people to do what my parents do. I, I give them a heads up on the movies that I'm covering on the show. Watch the movie first because it, it is a movie, regardless of your walk of, of life, it's relatable. Uh, the struggles are real. The problems are real. The dialogue is real. You get real people in real situations with real consequences. And that's not the kind of movie, again, that gets made very often. This movie came out in 1978. It's, like I said, I don't, I can't re- reiterate this enough. It's just as relevant now, if not more relevant, pardon the cliche. And it's just a brilliant movie that the critics loved, the audience for... I think was between the trailer and we talked about the advertising, we talked about the VHS cover. It's kind of misleading. Again, I, I mentioned this on the show a couple of times. This is not the kind of movie that if I was in the market, if I was hired to market this movie, I wouldn't. This is not a job that I would want to. It's easy to market a comedy. You show in some funny scenes. It's easy to market a, a drama. And I guess the, the marketing department says, well, we got to. We got Richard Pryor in this movie, so we got to play up Richard Pryor. But again, the advertising is misleading. This movie has a message. This movie will take you... You feel like you've worked a day on the assembly line afterwards. This movie will kind of wear you out. But in a good way. Again, this movie came out in 19... 19- called it a downer. I, I, I think the movie's a downer. But then again... <laughs> but I... I I like it. I like a downer. I think that too often. I don't know. For me personally, a lot of people say, "Well, I I want to go to a, you go to a, you watch a movie to escape for a while. If you want a happy ending, this is no. Uh, well, we that's a whole that's a topic that we could discuss to death. I think that if you you're you're thinking you're gonna get a, a, a funny Richard Pryor comedy, this is not the movie. Go watch Stir Crazy or something. <laughs> Go watch even better. Watch some of his stand-up comedy. You'll or the toy. Yeah, or the t- exactly. Watch watch one of those. Let. Laugh-
Brewster's Millions. That's a, another good. Because his stand up, the brilliance of his stand up was never really captured in a movie, I don't think, was it? No, he, he did stand up specials, but I mean, as far as capturing his comedic. Like, I think that this movie is the best example of his stand up being utilized. Like, his style of stand-up comedy being utilized in a movie just because I, I don't know much about his personal life, but I get the feeling that he came up in a very blue-collar family, if I'm not mistaken. It's a very probably gritty, street-level kind of comedy. Like, um, Zeke's the, 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 uh, the street smart... Well, street smart to a certain degree, but again, we've, we've talked this movie for quite a quite a long time now it's a great movie can't recommend it enough paul schrader well known for his collaborations with scorsese this was um one of the uh, another collaboration that he did with his brother leonard and schrader finally got his first academy award nomination for an original screenplay just a couple years ago but if you look back at his catalog he's got some real interesting movies in there and uh this for a directorial debut, I'm glad that he did contemplate never directing again after this. <laughs> Which, yeah. I mean, just speaks to the how much tension there was behind the scenes. Let's wrap this up. This movie was shot in Detroit. It feels like a real Detroit movie. You feel like you, yeah. the city feels lived in. Uh, the neighborhoods are real. The car plant that they used was an actual uh, checker cab company plant. And um, yeah, it was filmed in the home state of Michigan of Paul Schrader. A great, great movie. It gave us a... a, a I love the opening song, Hard Working Man, Captain Beefheart and Jack Nitsky. Um, it's an interpretation of an old Muddy Waters blues song. Just a great addition to the movie. A little over two hours, but it flies by. And it just a little interesting fun tidbit that this movie set the, the record at the time, which was later broken by Scarface, I believe, a couple years later, with the word fuck being used 158 times. So that was a, a record at the time. I noticed that and it didn't bother me. And I was fine with it. It actually made it, it made it, once again, I'm, I'm using the word real over and over and over again. But once again, it really authentic, 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 more authentic to be authentic. Uh, oh, now I can't say it. I... <laughs> Authenticized. <laughs> so, yeah, because it, it, it feels like th this is the way that these guys would talk. It doesn't feel for sometimes like you, you feel like it's forced in certain movies that you, you kind of have to you, you need to drop an F-bomb here and there. And the um, yeah. the N word is sprinkled throughout this movie too, but that's just like it. It feels like the, this is like realistic. This is the way that these guys would actually talk. It doesn't feel forced. Yes. It's almost like you could like if you show this as a documentary on unions to people that were unfamiliar with Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor, they uh, why not? This is like <laughs> this is the way these people talk. And using the real set of a real cab company, they got lucky because no no major automobile manufacturer wanted anything to do with this movie. Obviously, because it's it's yeah. it it's a condemnation of management and unions. Yeah, but it also it also gives you some of the positives of the unions. But again, we've talked about 
if you you've you've listened to us ramble enough about this movie, if for every reason you haven't watched it, go watch it, go rewatch it. Just spread the word that this is this is one that y- you need to see. Final thoughts, Andrew. So, yeah, and the the last movie I'm going to bring up in comparison is called Save the Tiger with Jack Lemmon. It came out a few years before. Um, got a lot of critical praise and actually an Academy Award nomination for Jack Lemmon, but it didn't go very far in the box office. But it also deals with uh, with corruption. Uh, Jack Lemmon plays um, a man who works in the garment industry in Los Angeles, and they are having trouble making ends meet, and he makes a deal to um, to create arson for to collect the insurance, and it's it's just it's grim and dark, and it gets more and more underhanded. As so, you see how people who are operating within a corrupt system um, have to often resort to corrupt means to to continue operating in that corrupt system. There you have it. Beautiful. So, thank you once again for joining us on this. Uh, excursion into another cult classic uh, on the cult film companion this is the second time mr Keitel has showed up on our show and this will be the first time paul schrader shows up on the show but uh, he's got a couple some cult movies in there and um i i think cat people is definitely one that's worth talking about just because it's it's a very bizarre movie but that's an episode for another day thank you all for joining us on the assembly line of blue collar for andrew my name is chris thank you for checking out the cult film companion podcast and we'll talk again to you real soon